0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Nathan Meissen, president and founder of Diplomat Consulting and co-chair of the National Cannabis Working Group for Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Nathan, thanks for taking the
1: time. How are you doing today? I'm pretty grand. Life is uh, pretty good. Lots of fun things going on in the world. So it's uh, lots of time and lots of change uh, in the cannabis sector and beyond. So fun to be a part
0: of it. Obviously, we've talked about when you're leaning on other previous policies like New York, who can lean on California and Denver to kind of do the right ways. When you're in that room for the first time and you're saying it's only you and another country, there's no other countries you can lean on for framework or for references. So that has to be another layer of complexity and challenges because you're not only fighting the stigma of the unknown, you don't have anyone to kind of lean on and say, look, they've done it successfully. This is what we can steal from.
1: Well, and, you know, big up Uruguay, right? But Uruguay is not Canada. So Canada doing it was going to be the basis of probably what everybody else, like since Canada went through the legalization process, we just talked about it, we went from two countries in the world to 59, right? Like, it was the first Commonwealth nation that did it. There's now 24 Commonwealth nations that are going through cannabis legalization right now.
0: I want to stay on that topic because it's so interesting. And I never really thought about like the international, I guess, peer pressure that would have ensued if they turned and started wagging their fingers. So Is that a consideration before that's legalized? Or do you think that's kind of like a post, oh, I didn't realize that this was going to be received so negatively?
1: There's two different elements in most policy development, right? Politicians and bureaucracy. So we all know that the bureaucracy might have been running around in circles with their hand above their head, screaming like they were on fire, that we were in violation to that stuff. And the political class could be like, we made a promise. Let's get it over the line because we're pandering to 18 to 35-year-olds. And we're going to make this happen hell or high water. And the guys who are running around in circles that are screaming, they can take care of the international consequence because I don't even know if I'll be here in the future. So, you know, I think you have to find that happy balance between the two. But, you know, there was some movement in other jurisdictions to already see cannabis move. Australia was talking about it. New Zealand was talking about it. Germany was talking about it. Uh, South Africa was talking about it. Mexico was talking about it. So I I think that's a, a really, that was very beneficial.
0: Do you think there was an economic uh, influence or an economic kind of major point behind it saying, hey, if we do go first, we can capture like a bigger opportunity, and position the businesses for potential exposure if and when the other countries follow suit? Or you think it was kind of like, hey, we think this is a good idea. We should do it because it can help the citizens here.
1: I think that's a great question. And the answer is categorically no. They did not care about the economics because, again, this was a Health Canada-led thing because of the Supreme Court uh, ruling. And that's been one of the worst things that's actually happened for the cannabis sector because when you have to go up against people who believe reefer madness, that you have to go up with people who are trenched in the tropes of the past, one of the ways to crack that is like, hey, this is generating $43 billion of economic impact and 151,000 direct and indirect jobs in the last three and a half years and has continued to grow during COVID as perhaps one of Canada's greatest COVID economic success stories, but they didn't give a shit. So, you know, an interesting thing, and I think this is a really important thing to, uh, to keep in mind, is there is not one provincial or federal economic mandate at one ministry or ministerial purview for the economics of cannabis. A sector that is now larger than dairy, forestry, mining and automotive production has nobody who gives a shit about the jobs that it creates in this country.
0: So I wanna slightly switch gears on the topic standpoint. So what's Canada's perception of the US and how they're handling the process or the rollout of uh, cannabis?
1: Well, oh, that's a great question. So Canadian, license holders, which are the cultivators, are please for the love of God, hurry up and federally do it so that we can push our 1.2 billion extra grams of cannabis down there into your market. While Oregon, Washington, and Colorado are like, please for the love of God, let federal legalization happen so that we can push our hundreds of thousands of pounds to the rest of the country. That's an interesting circumstance. We'll figure out how that plays out in the markets. I think bolting that um, on to uh, the, the Mexico um, movement as well is a really interesting one because you have potentially cannabis uh, potentially be a part of the USMCA negotiations in the future. So you have a North American purview. Hell, even if we just start at hemp, which we've approved across, now you have a North American CBD um, and non-psychoactive cannabinoid market. That's a really interesting point of view. I think. Canadian companies and regulators have started to lose faith that federal legalization is imminent. I think you know the political discourse in the states is pretty fragmented. Um, so Canadians are looking at other jurisdictions. and I say this a lot on conversations with the states and I feel bad because I feel like I'm always like the negative Nancy of, of opportunity for Americans. Um, but the fact that there is going to be a worldwide standard, for cannabis, it probably based around EU GMP production because of the size of the European market and because the federal government isn't involved in that conversation, it could potentially lock American cannabis in America. Canada is starting to look at Germany, France, Europe as a significant place to divert their attention to, especially because the Americans are trapped in their own border with their cannabis.
0: I mean, being left out of those sort of, like, conversations just because we can't get our act together is, is so complicated because, like you were saying, Nathan, like, here in the States, we're, it's, a state, it's a state-led story. And what we don't have as a federal level is, is a somewhat of an understanding of a plan moving forward, or at least if there is, it doesn't seem like there's a clear one. So when Canada's looking to, let's say, expand their operations and they're limited with which direction they can go, right, they can either be passive and wait for the U.S., which is kind of challenging, or they can take that to Europe, it's a bad sign for U.S. because there's good opportunities as well from an exposure standpoint, right? Economies of scale, just based on the sheer location. That's got to be another layer of hurdle that the U.S. operators is going to fall before. If you can sum up your experience in the cannabinoid space in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on the next generation, what would it be?
1: It's an economic opportunity that is unfettered. My kids are going to grow up in a world where cannabis is going to be larger than alcohol and accepted by more people and utilized more diversely. Hurry up and get us there instead of fighting for beliefs from 50 years ago.
0: Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception?
1: Well, that's a really interesting conversation. So (laughs) that I didn't support legacy, you know, because I work for a retailer that was seen as like, one of the real white collar corporate cannabis companies that was so out in front and significant development, people didn't see that we were advocating for the entire sector. Um, they saw that we were just advocating for better policies for, uh, for fire and flower and, and, and for corporate cannabis and uh, not understanding that you know to build a better sector that displaces the, elect, uh, the, the illegal sector. I was advocating for as many of legacy people to come into the market as easy as possible because we want their better cannabis and you're going to displace the illicit sector by bringing people in as quick as possible and easy as possible.
0: All right. Prediction time. I wrote this one on the fly, so I apologize for mumbling it. How do do we get the NAFTA or formerly known NAFTA agreement to allow for cannabis um, sales across US, Canada, and Mexico? And does it need federal legalization to occur?
1: Great question. I I am very involved with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. I believe that the, the Chambers of Commerce, uh, because they represent everybody in the supply chain, cultivators, retailers, ancillary businesses, is a great way to do it. I believe that the political um, relationships that you have with traditional economic actors representing it towards Um, politicians who are thinking that it's just a cannabis company coming in there and whining for better policy that they could take advantage of to the point of the past. And I would start with non-psychoactive cannabinoids like CBD, CBN, THC, because they're already approved in all three locations. So start there and then let's work to inebriants. When? Uh, the, The next USMCA review is in 2023. Let's roll up our sleeves and let's get her done. Thanks so much for your
0: time, Nathan. Appreciate it. No
1: problem. It was a real pleasure. I look forward to having it again, guys.
0: Absolutely. Talk soon.
1: Thanks. Be well.
2: Thanks for listening
1: to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.
2: Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who abused cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Yelland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain,